So as I'm sure you know, at the Seder night, we're retelling the story and we actually do it multiple times, each time through a biblical text. Again, those are the texts that are bolded on this page. The first one is the Avadim Hayinu, which is very short. And I'll read what it says here in bold, which is, I think, identical to what we say, which is, Avadim Hayinu Lefaro B'mitzvayim. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord God took us out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And in parentheses, I have Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is the source of this text. So I want to raise two questions about this passage as it appears in the Haggadah, and then use those two questions as a jumping off point to talk about certain aspects of the Haggadah. In order to formulate the questions, I need to ask you to actually open your Chumash Tanakh to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. So it says, When your child asks you tomorrow or in the future, saying, What are the laws and statutes that the Lord God commanded you? You should say to your child, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and God took us out of there with a strong hand. And God put great signs and wonders, and terrible and great signs and wonders, in Egypt against Pharaoh and all of his household in front of our eyes. And God took us out of there in order to bring us, to give us the land which God swore to our ancestors. So if you compare that with what we have in the Haggadah, there's a few things we can notice. First of all, and what I really want to focus on, is that the Haggadah only quotes one of those verses. It only quotes the first verse, we were slaves and God took us out of there. Interestingly, and we're not going to discuss that, even in quoting that verse, it changes the words around a little bit. It expands it. Instead of Hashem, it says Hashem Elokeinu. Instead of Biyat Chazakah, it says Biyat Chazakah is But essentially, it's more or less the first verse, verse 21. But oddly, we don't continue the story. Right? There's more of the story than God took us out of there. Right? The text in Deuteronomy includes... God did these great wonders, and God took us out of there in order to bring us to the land. So I want to start by raising the question, why don't we tell the whole story, right? Why do we start by only talking about the first part of the story, which is we were slaves, and God took us out of there? And in particular, I want to focus on verse 23, a verse that we don't say, God took us out of there. If you flip over the page for a second, you see on the left side of the page excerpts from the Gemara in the 10th chapter of Masech HaPesachim, which is the chapter that talks about the Seder. And all the way on the bottom of the page, on the left side, you see three lines from the bottom, you see the big letters Gimel Mem, which is short for Gemara. And right there, Rava, a Babylonian sage, says, Tzarich Sheyomar Ve'otanu Hotsi Misham. But you have to say, Ve'otanu Hotsi Misham, which is right here, verse 23, the continuation of the Avadim Hayinu passage. So we only tell part of the passage, right? And we don't include the whole story. And just kind of to highlight how strange that is when a sage in the Gemara, Rabbi, actually says that you have to say that verse. You have to say, Vyotanu Hotsi Misham. So I want to use that question as a jumping off point, And I want to kind of formulate 
two aspects of that question. One is that we stop the story in the middle, as we'll see later, hopefully, depending how far we get. Every time, as it turns out, every time in the Haggadah that we cite a biblical passage, in other words, each one of these four bolded passages that are from the Tanakh, every single time we retell the story of the Exodus by citing the biblical passage, we always stop before the end. Right? We never talk about the last part of the passage, always which talks about getting to the land. Right? We stop in mid-sentence. So that's one aspect of the question. And the other aspect of the question is that when you think of the verse, Be'otanu hotsimisham, there's essentially two parts of that verse. I'll read it again. Be'otanu hotsimisham, this is verse 23. Be'otanu hotsimisham liman havi'otanu l'tet lanu et ha'aretz ha'shenishba'alavotenu. So the main thrust of the verse is that there was a purpose to the Exodus. Right? The purpose of the Exodus was God bringing us to the land which God swore to the forefathers. But there's an interesting formulation, the way the verse is formulated, which is that the object of the verb, um, for those who don't know grammar, object is the thing to which the verb is done. <laughs> you know, we Americans don't always know that. That the object of the verb right, comes at the beginning of the sentence, which is irregular word order in biblical Hebrew. And when you have that object coming before the verb, right, it emphasizes the object. Right? So instead of translating and he took us out of there, the best translation would be, and it is us that he took out of there. You can't really do this in English, right? You can do this in a lot of other <laughs> languages. But to his child, so that's why he's saying that. That what? The emphasis to the child is, and it was us that God took out. Yes, that's what, and we're going to talk about that, right? But right here you have a very strong emphatic, right? God didn't just take us out. It was us, right, that God took out. Emphasis on us, and that is... When Rava says, you have to save Otanu Hotsimisham, Rava's probably emphasizing that, right? You have to emphasize that it was us. And yet, right, we don't say that in Avadim Hayyid. Okay? So I want to emphasize both parts of that. One is that we're ending the story before the end, and as we don't get to the end, which is God to bring us to the land. And secondly, that the part of this biblical text that highlights that it was us, right, is not said here, right? Even though Rava says you have to say that. Okay, so that's kind of the introduction. And I want to kind of take it from there. So first of all, I want to ask the question, why don't we say Gautana Hatsimisham? And secondly, I want to ask the question of, is it true that we don't say Gautana Hatsimisham? Right? Do we or don't we say Gautana Hatsimisham in the Haggadah? We do say it, but we say it much later, which is noteworthy. Right? This is all stuff you may know, right? but I want to highlight that this is actually not what you would expect if you were writing the Haggadah from scratch. If you were writing from scratch, you would have written, you would continue the verse. But what we do is we don't say there, but we do say it at the extreme end of Magid. Right? And you have this at the bottom of your page. There's a lot of excerpts here. Right? This actually takes you through the whole Magid, skipping a lot. Right? So at the very, very bottom, right before we say right? the Racha that ends Magid, right? the very last thing we say, after we say Rabban Gamliel, Right, Rabbi Gamliel said three things. We have Rabbi Gamliel, whoever said these three things, whoever didn't explicate the meaning behind Pesach Matzomar, did not fulfill their obligation. And then it explains each of the three things. And then it says, right, In every generation, a person must see themselves as if they left Mitzrayim. 
And then you see we actually, in Aragon, we actually put two biblical texts, they're both bolded. In the Rambam's Haggadah, if you hold these two things side by side, it's easier to notice this. In the Rambam's Haggadah, he just quotes one text at this point. He just quotes, he says, You have to see yourself as if, you're obligated to see yourself as, as if you left Egypt. How do you know that you have that obligation? Because the Torah says that God took us out of there, not just our forefathers, right, but also us. So it's only at the very, very end of Magid that we emphasize that it is us that God took out of there. We don't actually say that at the beginning of Magid, right? So there's some sort of a trajectory going on here. Now, if you look for a second at our version of the Haggadah, you'll see that in Behold Dor Vador, we quote two psukim. I just want to highlight that now, and we'll get back to that uh, in a bit. We say, Behold Dor Vador, Chayav Adam Liroot et Asmok Ilu Hu Yatsam Mimitzraim, Shene Amar, Vihigarata Levincha Bayoma Huleimor, Bavur Ze Asa Hashem Li Pitseti Mimitzraim. You should tell your child on that day, saying, Bavur Ze Asa Hashem Li Pitseti Where's that verse from? So it's actually from Shemot. There are four times that the Torah talks about if your child asks you or telling your child, right? Those four times that the Torah talks about that are what generates the idea of the four children. One of them we just saw, it's in Devarim, chapter 6, when your child asks you in the future, you should say, the other three are all in Shemot, actually. Okay. So if you turn back to Shemot, they're all in chapters 12 and 13 of Shemot, the, the other three. So that's why it's four sons. That's what generates the idea of four children, yeah. Let's just look at this quickly. If you open to Shemot chapter 12, you'll see verse 26. When your children say to you, You should explain to them, Who saved us when he struck Egypt. So that's one time. If we keep skimming, we'll find, where's the next one? We could look this up in Haggadah, but it's, you learn it much better when you actually find it. So that's why I'm trying to do it this way. So let's look at chapter 13, verse 8. This talks about eating matzah. And then it says, That's the second one in Shemot. And then um, the third one is a few psukim after that in verse 14. When your child asks you saying mazot, you should say So those are the four places that the Torah explicitly says, tell your child. Exodus verse the 13, 14. 14, yeah, but don't write it down. Don't no, no, it down. no, right. I'm saying is that right. so it was <laughs> yeah. the chapter 12 yeah, but, but, and then 13. Yeah, that's all you need to remember is that is three of them, three of them are right there, right, when God is telling Moshe the instructions right. that he needs to know before you see Amitzvayim. And then once in Dvarim, and then you okay. will find them, right? Yep. So the one we want to talk about, Bavorzeh, right? That one I do want to see inside. So that's chapter 13, verse 8. This is the only one that doesn't say when your child asks you, right? The other three say when your child asks you. This is the one that doesn't say when your child asks you. If you look at chapter 13, verse 8, right? It does not say, and when your child asks you, why are you eating matzah? You should respond, Bavorzeh, It doesn't say that. It just says, eat matzah. And tell your child on that day, We'll get back to that verse. As we'll see, the Haggad actually quotes this verse at least four different times. Not surprising, because this is actually the verse that gives us the concept of Haggadah. Tell your child. So this is actually, it is this verse which is the source of the notion of Magid, of Haggadah, of Haggadah. So we'll get back to this. But 
if we just keep this verse open and look back in the Haggadah, again, this page, right, not the Ramos page, but the page that, of, of our Haggadah, this verse is quoted in Bechol Dor Vador. So again, Bechol Dor Vador, in every generation a person must see themselves as if they left Egypt, as it says, you shall tell your child on that day, saying, this is on account of what God did for me or to me when I left Egypt. Okay, why is this proof text brought here? What is it trying to show? What word are we highlighting? No, I mean, that is behind the whole thing. But in every generation, you have to see yourself as if you left Egypt. And it's, as it says, tell your child, this is on account of what God did for me when I left Egypt. Me, right? You per- Lee, right? A Lee, person has Lee, to, right, Lee, a person has to see themselves as if they left Egypt. In every generation, how do we know that? Because by Yom Hahu, the Torah says, in a future time, 2019, right? You have to say, So the fact that it says, I'm going to tell my child. I remember when my oldest child was like three, two, three. We went to my in-laws for the Seder, two. And I remember him asking something. This was before the Seder, you know, my mother-in-law was preparing and he asked her something and she said to him, well, you know, we were slaves in Egypt. And I was thinking, no, 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 that is pedagogically terrible. <laughs> because he doesn't know who we is, right? Like, we weren't slaves in Egypt. Like we, right? But she was using this we. We, we were slaves in Egypt. But he was too, right? So that's the I, right? That you, in 2019, the Torah says, you, by Yomahu, will say, but was there Hashem Li? So the fact that you can say Li means that you see yourself the Haggadah is claiming, doesn't necessarily mean that, right? the Haggadah is understanding that, is using that as a proof text for that you have to see yourself as if you personally left Egypt. And then the Haggadah goes on and says, it was not our forefathers alone whom God redeemed, rather we too, Otanu, right, we too, now we've moved from the lead, right, the individual to the communal because we're moving toward this other puzzle, right? But also we, God redeemed with them. How do we know that? Because it says, Ve'otanu hotzi misham. Leman havi otanu latet lanu et Because it says in Sefer Devarim, this is the first puzzle we looked at, right? It was us that God took out of there in order to bring us, to give us the land. So our version of Bechol Devador uses these two Versus how do you know that Lee means actually me, right? Because we assert and say for divine Vyotano, right? It was us. God actually took us out of there. So the fact is that it's not only that it's strange that we don't say Vyotano Hutimisham as a continuation of Avadim Hayinu, which it is a continuation of in the Torah, but on the other hand, we do say it. But we say it in a completely different place. I don't know how long your Magid is, but let's say it's a mere hour, which is, you know, for some people extremely long and for some people unbelievably short, right? But let's say it's an hour, okay? It means it's an hour between when you said the first verse of Avadim Hayinu and the last verse of Avadim Hayinu. Why is that? So I want to suggest, and I think this is actually pretty clear, and then we'll try to complicate it a little bit, that what we say at the beginning of Magid and what we say at the end of Magid are actually a little bit different. So let's look back at Avadim Hayinu, and again we can look at this in the Rambam because it's pretty much the same as what we say. We say, Avadim Hayinu lefaro b'mitzvayim v'yotzeinu Hashem alokeinu misham v'yad chasuka v'zuro netuya. V'ilu lo hotzi ha-kadosh baruchu et avotenu mimitzvayim 
הרי היא עדיין אנו ובנינו ובני בנינו משובדים היינו לפרעה במצרים. And had God not took our ancestors out of Egypt, we and our children and our children's children would still be slaves to Paro in Mitzrayim. According to this formulation of the Haggadah, whom did God take out of Egypt? Avotenu, we would say. Yes, God took our ancestors out of Egypt. Now that's important for us to talk about why, according to this, Because it conflicts with saying that he took me and then he took Right, no, but I'm saying right here, according to the Gada, right? Okay, so that happened 3,000 years ago. That's very nice. Why is it important to me? We would still be here. It's important to me because, right, had God not taken them out, we would still be slaves. I have to say, when I was in elementary school and I learned this, or I learned what this means, I was very puzzled by this, actually, because I guess I was a little bit of a naysayer. I was actually a very goody-goody, but in my heart of hearts. I was a little bit of a naysayer. I said to myself, you know, that was like 3,000 years ago. Who said, you know, that had they not been taken out of Egypt, we would still be slaves? You know, a lot of things happen over the course of time. As they say to Tony Soprano, you know, where are the Romans now? You know, the Egyptians aren't there anymore. Who said we'd still be slaves? To which Tony, of course, says, this is the only Sopranos episode I ever saw because I showed it in a class That's I was teaching fun. on Masachat Gitin, sadly. He says... You're looking at him. But anyway. Because he was wrong. Because he's Italian. Yes, yes, okay, he okay. is wrong. Yes. Exactly. But anyway, my point is, right, saying, oh, had that not happened then, I would still be a slave, is a kind of contingency, right? But it's quite different. And maybe it's, maybe it's true. Maybe we would have disappeared, right? But what it's saying is, I have to remember my history because I'm implicated in my history. And that is very different from saying, this is my story. At the end of Magid, we say, it wasn't just them that got redeemed, we were redeemed. Right? It's actually our story. Not he took them out, and that matters to me. I have to know my history. History matters, right? But he took us out, too. Right? And that's a completely different kind of a statement. And I think what's happening here is that Magid actually, and this is the point I wanted to emphasize and then try to figure out how the Haggadah tries to deal with this, is that Magid actually poses a significant difficulty. And it, the difficulty is not that we have to bore our guests before they eat. I mean, that is a difficulty, but that's the easy difficulty. The difficulty of Magid is that it makes a claim, which I don't know about you, but I find you know, extremely difficult, which is actually seeing yourself as if you left Egypt. How do you actually see yourself as if this is your story? To say it's an important story, I think we can all assent to that, right? That this is an important story. There was actually just an article two days ago in Times of Israel about an exhibit, I don't remember where the exhibit is, but of Bibles from the 19th century that were printed for slaves and that took out, right, the first, like, 19 chapters of Exodus Mm. and took out the law that says it's forbidden to return a runaway slave, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, So we know that this story, you know, continues to be relevant and important. But that's quite different from saying that you have to experience this as your story. And the challenge that the Haggadah puts out, that Maki puts out, is that this is your story. And what I want to suggest is that the Haggadah is well aware that that is extremely difficult to get to that point, and therefore it actually does not ask us to say that at the beginning of Magid. At the beginning of Magid, that's all we're saying is, this is a very important part of our history. Had God not taken us out of there, we would still be slaves. And it's only at the end of Magid that the Haggadah asks us to assert that actually it is our story, right? God took us out of there, right? Behold the door, you have to see that. And so the challenge that the Seder takes on is bringing us from one of those points to the other, right? Bringing us from the point of saying this is, it's very important for us to recollect this history to saying this is my story. Yeah. 
You know, it just brings to mind that on Sukkot, it's another one of those holidays where you're sort of reenacting an experience. And this experience, though, is so different. It's not about the shelter that you lived in and sort of imagining what it would be like to be living in the elements for real all the time. This slavery piece is a completely different animal. So what you're just saying is how to tackle an experiential thing in an experience that has nothing to do with that experience in a very physical way. Right. And beating each other with leaks won't get, won't, won't get in there. I mean, it might, it might do something, right? But you did not. I mean, most of right. us, right? Did, I think probably all of us in this room have not experienced that. Okay. Let me just go back for a second to the other verse that we quote in Behold to Orador, because I mentioned before that this verse actually gets quoted three prior times in the Haggadah, and I want to look at that, and for that, you will need your Haggadahs. I never uh, look at a published book that has anything to do with me because I find mistakes. It's a process. You can't just sit down, have a cup of wine, and say, oh, yeah. yeah. Right? It's a process to make that link between your own experience right? and the story that we're recollecting. Okay. And that's what the Seder is, is trying to, trying to get us to do. Oh, yeah. Well, if we didn't, then I think at the end it wouldn't ask us to save the Otano Hotsumishan. Right? In other words, it's assuming that we can get there. Right, exactly, exactly. Okay, so I want to look at this other pasuk that Behold Dorvador quotes. And the other pasuk that it quotes is this one, which is again in Exodus chapter 13, verse 8. So, anybody know offhand where else we quote that verse in the Haggadah? Three other times we quote this verse. With the four children. Yes, that's correct. So the first time is the four children. To which child do we say that first? That's right. So to the Rasha. So Rasha Mahu Omer. By the way, there's a lot of complication around the four children that we're not going to talk about, so I don't even want to talk about the Rasha's question right now. But... The question is, right? what is all this worship about for you? To which the Haggadah says, lachem v'lo lo. The Rasha says, lachem, what's it all about to you? And therefore you should say to him, this is on account of what God did for me when I came out of Egypt. Li v'lo lo. Right? The parent says to this person, God did it for me. Me meaning as opposed to for you. Had you been there, right? had he been there, he would not have been redeemed. Right? He's not part of the community that understands itself to be redeemed. So the first time we quote this pasuk is in response to the Rasha. And actually, interestingly enough, we use this same pasuk in response to a different one of the four children. Right, the child that does not know how to ask. What do you do with that child? Right, you, you open the conversation for him. As it says, Now here we quote the beginning of the Pasuk because, again, this is the only time, you see this if you look back in the Tanakh, chapter 13, verse 8, right? This is the only one of the four times that it talks about telling your child about the Exodus that it doesn't say the child asked. And that's, again, what generates this idea. It's Shenar Yodel Ishol. So the Shenar Yodel Ishol, so you tell him, this is what God did for me when I came out of Egypt. So I think that's interesting, right, that the same verse, it's focusing on different parts of the verse, right, but the same verse is used both for the Rasha and the Eno Yodel Ishol. And I think the reason for that is that both of them 
both of these two children for different reasons. He right? doesn't see themselves as part of the story. And the Russia doesn't see himself as part of the story. What are you doing? Right? What's this all about for you? And so you say, well, okay, if, if you are distinguished between you and us, so I'm going to make the same distinction. Right? God did this for me, not for you. Right? The Russia looks at what's going on, sees what's going on, right? but doesn't relate to it. It doesn't see themselves as part of that story. And the Shenori Delishol also doesn't see themselves as part of the story. They don't even know there is a story. Right? They're so disengaged. You know, we usually see as a tiny kid. It could be a tiny kid. It could also be somebody who just doesn't even know enough about it to even be curious about it. Right? They're not in this story, and therefore your the parent is enjoined, right? or the Seder leader is enjoined to start telling them this story. So this Bavor Hashem Asa Hashem Mitzrayim is on the one hand the kind of the core verse that generates this whole idea of Haggadah. It's the verse that Behold Dorvador uses right, to emphasize your connection to the story, but it's also the verse that the Haggadah uses to respond to people who don't understand that they're part of the story. Do you see what I'm saying? Right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's both emphasizing your connection to the story right, and addressing people who don't understand that they're part of the story. And I think that in a way, what's happening is, and remember, we're looking at it in reverse order. In other words, when we encounter this verse in the Haggadah, first, we encounter it as the response to the Rasha and the Eno Yudeli Shol. And only much later in Magid do we encounter it as the verse which tells us, right, which asks us to recognize that this is our story. And I think, in a way, what's going on here is that we, ourselves, are the children who need to be convinced that it's our story. Not that we're the Russian, they know you daily shawl, I don't want to go that far, but in a way, we are, in fact, the children who need to be convinced that it's our story. And when you think about it, we are the children who need to be convinced that it's our story, right? Because when the Torah talks about, in the future, you'll tell your children who were not there about this story, right? We always take that to be a command to us to tell our children, right, who were not there, but actually, from the Torah's perspective, we are the children who were not there. In Sefer Dvarim, I mean, what is Sefer Dvarim? It is Moshe retelling the story to the children who were not there. And we, right, are the children who were not there. You have this verse, which I always like very much, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 5, not in the context of Pesach. And Moshe says the following emphatic verse. Lo et avotenu korat Hashem et habrit hazot. He's talking about the covenant of Sinai. Lo et avotenu korat Hashem et habrit hazot. It was not with our fathers that God struck this covenant. Rather, it was with us, us, those here today, those who are alive here today. So that's essentially what Sefer Dvarim is all about. You were not there, but I'm going to try to convince you that actually it is you. And that's what Moshe does throughout Sefer Devarim, right here, nothing to do with Agada. He says, right, you may think the covenant was something that happened a generation ago, but no, actually it was you. You stood at Sinai. This is really the origin of the idea that we were all at Sinai, right? And it's so emphatic. Itanu, anachmu, elapohayom. And if you look at it, it's exactly that same formulation. Not with them, but with us. It's the same formulation that we have lo et avotenu, but rather with us. The exact same formulation. We, in a sense, are lifting that formulation from what Moshe says in Sefer Devarim. It wasn't them, it was us. Or it wasn't only them, right? it was also us. So I think, so the parents of Sefer Devarim, right? the parents to whom Moshe says, in the future, when your child asks, you should say such and such, right? those parents 
from Moshe's perspective, right, are already the children to whom Moshe has to convince that they themselves were there. So what I'm saying is that we actually enter the, you know, we see ourselves as entering the Seder as the parents telling the children, but I want to suggest that we're actually at the same time entering the Seder as the children who need to be told, right, because we weren't there. And we don't necessarily fully understand or easily understand that it is our story, too. And that is the challenge that's being put out there. So we are, I'm not saying we're bad like the Russia, or we're a know your daily show like the child who doesn't know how to ask. But in a sense, we are also right, those children who don't quite see ourselves in the story. And so this Ba'avorizeh, right, which is used for the children who don't see themselves in the story, right, is then the Ba'avorizeh, which asks us to say, it was us. God redeemed us as well. And where's this one other place where Bavorza is in the is in the Haggadah? I'll give you a clue. It's very close to the first two times. It's actually right after it. It's not so clear because it's in the form of a midrash on the verse. So right after the shein, the answer to the Shaino Yadelish all, where we say Bavorza Sahashem we then right we then have a midrash on that verse. This is a very standard kind of midrash halacha formulation. We have Bavorza. Tell your child on that day, saying, This is on account of what God did for me when I left Mitzrayim. And Yechomi Rosh Chodesh is actually a continuation of that. Yechomi Rosh Chodesh, right? It says you have to tell your child. Perhaps, and this is how Mitzrayim Shalach always works, perhaps this? No. You can see from the biblical text that it's that. Well, perhaps this? No, no, no. You can see from the biblical text that it's that. Yechol, right? Perhaps. The obligation to talk about the Exodus begins from Rosh Chodesh. No, no, no. Talmud Lomar. No, the Torah says, Bayom Hahu. It doesn't just say, Vihigata Talabincha. It says, Vihigata Talabincha, Bayom Hahu. So, no, no, no. It's not, the obligation doesn't start on Rosh Chodesh. The obligation starts on Bayom Hahu, on that day, on the day of the Exodus. I Bayom Hahu, Yacholmi Bod Yom. These are all setups, right? For the correct answer, right? Ah, so it says Bayom Hahu, but maybe maybe even on the 14th, right before the Seder night, maybe the obligation to tell about the Exodus starts then. No, 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 Talmud Lamar, no, the Torah tells us, Ba'avor Zeh, right? Ba'avor Zeh, Ba'avor Zeh. Now, the Chazal, Midrash, always takes the word Zeh in the Torah to mean that you're pointing to something. Ha'chodesh Hazel Lachem. The Midrash says that God actually took Moshe outside and pointed to the moon and said, see, that's what it looks like. That's what the moon looks like. The first sliver of the new moon looks like. That's how you know when to declare the new moon. Zeh eliva anvehu. They're actually pointing. So they always see Zeh as, what they call it, I don't know how you pronounce it, Diktik, D-E-I-C-T-I-C. It means pointing. Diktik, I don't know how you pronounce it, but pointing, right? So, but avoid Zeh, right? You should say to your child on that day, but avoid Zeh, they understand is that the parent who is telling the child is actually pointing to something. What is the parent pointing to? This is on account of what God did for me when I left Egypt. What's the parent talking to? So the Midrash continues, I can't talk about I can only say when I have the Matzah and Maror set out before me. In other words, that the parent has to tell the story right in the context of the Matzah and the Maror, which shows that the obligation of Yigadotelebincha is to be fulfilled at the Seder night when Matzah and Maror are before you. Okay? So again, so this verse is really the central verse in the Haggadah, both in the sense that it gives the obligation of Haggadah, but also in the sense that it puts out the challenge of Asa Hashem Li, God did to me, 
And it suggests that one of the ways in which you're going to be able to meet that challenge is by telling the story in the context of the matzah and the mora, the interplay of story and symbol and experience. Okay, so let me just kind of sum up and then move to kind of think about how the Haggadah, how the Seder tries to help us meet this challenge. So the challenge that I'm suggesting is kind of at the heart of the Seder is that the Seder's focus on children is not just about what we tell our children. It's about recognizing that we ourselves are the children in this story, meaning we are the people who were not there, and therefore the the challenge is for us to find a way to enter into a story that we did not actually experience ourselves. And the question is, how do we try to meet that challenge? How do we get from Avanimayinu to Otano Hosemisha? So I wanted to mention a whole bunch of different things, some of which we may or may not get to. We'll see. A whole bunch of different things which characterize our storytelling in the Seder. One is something that I mentioned at the very beginning, which is I mentioned that when we start Avadim Hayinu, we don't finish the story. And not finishing the story means not only that we skip Ve'otanu Hotzimisham, which is what we've been focusing on, but that we don't get to the end of the story, which is God bringing us to the land. Now, if you look back, what you'll notice is that every single time we tell the story, we do not finish the story. So I'll give you a simple example of that. Arami Ovedavi, which is in the second to last paragraph on that page. Arami Ovedavi, this is a passage from Sefer Devarim, which in Sefer Devarim is a passage that a person recites when they bring their first fruits to the temple. And if you flip to the other side of the page for a second, on the right side of the page, you have the Mishnah of the 10th chapter of Pesachim. And the Mishnah says, this is on the fourth line, Vidoresh me Arami Ovedavi ad sheigmor kol ha that the person gives a midrash on this Arami Ovedavi passage, which is Deuteronomy 26, that the, it gives a midrash on this passage, so you don't just recite this passage, you give a midrash on this passage, which is what we do in the Haggadah. We take each verse in the passage, break it down into its component parts, and then give a midrash on each component parts. And it says that we explicate this passage, Ad Sheyigmor Kal HaParsha Kula, until you finish the entire passage. Right? And that's pretty emphatic, right? Not just until you finish the passage, but right? until you finish the entire passage, all of it. Right? Now, if you open up this passage in Deuteronomy 26, you will see that we do not do this. This is at the very beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 26. Right? You bring your bikurim, you bring your first fruits, and you say, verse 5, Aramio Vedavi. That's a story. Where do we end? Right, we do not include Verse 9, we end with, right, God took us out of there, and we do not include the verse that says God brought us to this place. If you look at each and every one, which we won't do together today, but if you look at each and every one of the biblical passages that we cite in order to tell the story, in each and every case, we actually stop the story in the middle, which is interesting. And there's lots of things one could say about why we stop the story in the middle, but I want to make one suggestion which is that when you stop a story in the middle, you draw the person into the story, as opposed to when the story has an end and says the end and the story is over. The story in the middle draws you in. It's a story in progress. And you can imagine yourself 
at different points in the story because it's not a story that has its complete happy ending, fini, it's over, right? The curtains close, the book closes. It's a story that's in progress. So I think that's one That's one thing that we do in the Haggadah, is that we say this story is still going on. The story hasn't ended, right? We're in the middle of that story and inviting us to kind of fit ourselves into this story, which has not yet come to its completion. So that's one thought. Another thought as to how the Seder invites us, right, the children who are not there, to enter into the story is... Super obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is that we are asked to ask questions. Again, we usually imagine that the questions are for the kids. Right? So, yeah, I, I, anybody here a youngest child? So I'm a youngest child. Mm-hmm. I hated I hated being youngest child in general, but I particularly hated that I was expected to say Manishtana because I was excruciatingly shy. Right? So we always imagine that you know it's for the children to say the Manishtana. And in fact, that it is for the youngest child right, to say the Manishtana. In fact, that's not so straightforward. The Talmud makes it clear that if there's no child to ask questions, you and your wife or husband ask each other questions. And if you're not married or you happen to be having your Seder all by yourself, and I was going to say Nepal, but Nepal you would be with 3,000 mm-hmm. other Jews at a Seder, so I don't know where you could be without Chabad nowadays, Timbuktu, I'm not sure, but wherever you are and you're having the Seder all by yourself, it says you ask yourself questions, which is a very strange thing, right? So the notion that you are kind of, that the tradition demands of you to ask questions, and that actually includes a proliferation of questions. And I'll show you one example of this. If you look back at the Mishnah, you see that the Rabban Gamliel passage, Rabban Gamliel said, whoever didn't explain these three things from Pesach did not fulfill their obligation, Pesach Matzomar, and then Pesach, because God skipped over the houses of our ancestors, Matzah, right, because uh, our ancestors were redeemed, etc. Uh, that's actually not exactly what we have in our Seder. What do we have in our Haggadah? We have Pesach Matamara. Yeah. What's the difference in how it's formulated? It doesn't say else. Okay, right away. Yeah. It skips over Batea Votena Vimitraim and goes right to the Beit HaMikdash. Where are you? No, no, no. Okay, ignore that. Oh, that's that's because in Rabban Gamliel's day. Okay, okay. Wait, 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 let me just explain. Because in Rabban Gamliel's day, even though it was after the destruction of the temple, they were still eating a Pesach. It wasn't a Pesach sacrifice, but they were still eating. Was we don't. Some of us say Bismashibet Hamitashayakaya. Right, so that's one big difference. Right? The Mishnah doesn't give a proof text. It just says Pesach because God skipped over, whereas we have a Pesach for each one. Right? And the other major difference, okay, I'm going to read Rabbi Gamliel, I'll read the Mishnah, and you look in here, okay? I'll read, just read Pesach. Pesach, the Mishnah says, Al shum shapesach hamakom abatea vatena b'mitzrayim. I even underlined it for you guys. No, it's that we we have it in a question and answer form. Oh, I see. Right. Right. Okay. So right. So so exactly right. We have it in a question and answer form. Rabbi Gamliel just says, just say it. Okay, Pesach is because of this. Matzah is because of this. Mar is because of this. We, we right? We yeah. You were looking at substance. I was looking at form. I know, I'm a very shallow we person. But form Q&A is really form. important. We have Q and A form. I remember my model seder in first grade. I mean, when I went to first grade, not when my school, which my school did not have a model seder, but when I was in first grade, and my part was. And I still feel connected to that sentence, right? In our house, we actually act this out, right? Somebody asks 
kids ask one can kid ask the question, another kid answers it, our kids are not little anymore, but we still have this out. Right? It's it's dynamic, it's a question and answer. So I, I, I just wanted to point that out that we are so focused on questions that actually the form that our Haggadah has taken has even added questions where the original Haggadah didn't have questions. Right? So so I think the the notion of forcing us to ask questions is another way of kind of trying to help adults become children, because we are the children here. And so in order to access the kinds of things that children um, access, we need to be asked to act like children, which again may or may not mean hitting somebody with a leak, but it does mean asking questions, right? Asking questions means that you are kind of forcing yourself to regain a kind of curiosity, a wonder, and not taking for granted, but a kind of to regain a naivete about what's going on and start, you know, wondering and, and asking questions. That's, like, also, that's also the way that you're not a slave. In the process of asking questions, questions. exactly, you actually open up the possibility of discovering meaning. That's right. All of this. That's right. You're a slave. You don't ask. That's right. As as Paro says, if you have questions, just get busy. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's a second thing. So the first thing I mentioned is the the idea of the stories still being in progress. The stories are not being quoted in their entirety. The stories being in progress. The second one is questions. And the third one I want to mention is that the Haggadah offers models of first-person narratives of people who were not there. (laughs) In other words, we're being asked to tell a story about somebody else, right, as a first-person story. And the Haggadah actually offers several models for that. One of them is, as we saw, is Avadim Hayinu, is what you're going to say in the future to your child. You're going to say, we were slaves, even though the person in the future is going to say this was not a slave. Aramio Vedovi is another example of that, really a great example of that. I mean, here's a person that Moshe, Moshe is talking to people who, and, and telling them about something that's going to happen in a, a distant, almost unimaginable future. At some point soon, Moshe says, you're going to cross into the land. And after you cross into the land, and you fight the battles that have to be fought, and you settle the land, and everybody has their own homestead, right? you're going to have a plot of land, and you're going to farm that plot of land. And after you farm that plot of land, you're going to reap your fruits, the fruits of your labor, and you're going to bring those first fruits to the temple, and you're going to make the following declaration. Right? So we're imagining something in the future, right? something that the people Moshe is talking to, who are already the children of the people who left, can barely even imagine. Right? And then this person brings their first fruits, and this person stands in front of the Kohen and says, my father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt, and he became a great nation. And the Egyptians harmed us and tormented us and gave us hard labor, and et cetera, et cetera. And as this person tells this narrative, which for that person is generations ago, in a completely different reality. Right? This guy's not even wandering in the desert, right? This guy's settled in the land of Israel, right? And this person tells the story of the enslavement in first person at the moment that he's standing in the land of Israel bringing the first fruits of his own labor, of his own land to the temple. So he's standing in the distant future and yet recalling the ancient past right in, in first person. And it's something that people often you know, notice about the Haggadah is that even though we choose multiple biblical passages to tell the story, none of those passages in which we tell the story actually comes from the book of Exodus, which you would expect to happen, right? But none of them comes from the book of Exodus. Now, there's probably a good pragmatic reason why none of them comes from the book of Exodus, which is it's too long, right? There's no pithy story in the book of Exodus that tells the, about the Exodus and the enslavement. It's actually a pretty it's 15 chapters long. 
So that's a pragmatic reason, but I think there's a better reason or an additional, <laughs> or additional reason, which is that each and every passage that we choose is not an actually kind of a primary text, right? Every passage that we choose is already a recollection. It's a recollect, and it's a first person. Most of them, not all of them, are first person recollections. And those are kind of models for us to be able to kind of recollect our story in first person. Sorry? It's a historical Right, but it's more than a historical perspective, right? It's a narrative perspective. In other words, it's not me. Again, the challenge is that it's not my history, but it's me. And by, by offering me examples, or exemplars of other people who were able, you know, who were living, you know, this guy bringing his Bikurim is as far experientially from the enslavement in Egypt as we are living in New York. And the fact that, that he can as he's holding his first fruits and laying them down right, in, in, in the temple, imagine this as his story, right, is kind of exemplar for us, that it's, it's his personal narrative, which is not the same as history. It's still different. Okay, so that's the third thing I wanted to suggest in terms of meeting this challenge. So the first one is story in progress, the second one is questions, and the third one is models of first-person first person narratives of people who were not there. The fourth mechanism that I wanted to mention, which, which is also kind of obvious, I think, but is important to mention, is that the Haggadah asserts for us and tries to demonstrate for us that the enslavement and exodus is something that happens again and again and again. It doesn't just assert it in texts like Bechol Dor Vador Chayav Adam or Vihishamda. By the way, Vihishamda has that same structure, right? It's exactly the same structure, not just this, but also in every generation. So it's not just that the Haggadah asserts this, right, that this is something that happens again and again and again, but the Haggadah actually offers models for this. It offers models of the idea that the exodus is something that happens again and again and again. I want to show you just one example of that. And that is the second biblical text that we use to tell the story. So if you look on this text, on this page, um, the second bolded text is a text from the end of Sefer Yehoshua. And what's interesting about, there's lots of interesting things about this text, but before you look about, at the text, what's interesting about choosing this text is that Yehoshua, at the end of his life, does very much what Moshe did at the end of his life. Moshe, at the end of his life, talks in Sefer Devarim to the people who were not there and tells them their story. And Yehoshua, at the end of his life, does the same thing. He's an old man. The people he's talking to were not the people that Moshe spoke to. And he also retells the story for them. And this is what he says. And this is an exceptionally strange text to choose to tell the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Why, why is it exceptionally strange? He's got Esav in there, which is weird. Yeah. Terach. Yeah. It's stopped short. With we got there, there's no word of oh, Yeah, in fact, it doesn't tell the story of the Exodus. Yeah. <laughs> right, it doesn't tell the story of the Exodus. Now, if you open to Yoshua 24, it continues. After Yaakov Vanavi Yodu Mitzrayim, Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt, it says, and I sent Moshe and Aaron, and I brought the Makot, and I took you out of there, on and on and on. It tells a long story. 
And here, it's not only that we end before getting to land, we end before the exodus. And we don't only end before the exodus, we actually end before the enslavement. We anticipate the enslavement, right? But we don't even get there. So we're doing several things here. But one thing that we're doing is that we're suggesting that actually the story of the exodus, it's not just that the story of the exodus will happen again and again and again, what we're actually suggesting in this story is that the story of the Exodus already happened before it ever happened. Right? Because when you read this over, let me read it over. Your ancestors lived on the other side of the river. We usually translate, they worshipped other gods. But another way to translate is, they were enslaved. Right? They were avadim to other gods. And I took your father, Avraham, from Avrahanahar, from the other side of the river, and I crossed him over the river, and I brought him to the land of Canaan. Okay? So what this is actually a story of is it's a story of enslavement in exile, and God takes Avraham right, out of that exile and enslavement, crosses him over the river, and brings him to the land. In fact, in, in Genesis 15, which is... Breed Ben Habitarim, we're not going to, we're actually, Hakkara goes on in a minute to quote Breed Ben Habitarim, we won't get to look at that today. But interestingly, when God introduces God's self to Avraham, when he brings him out to see the stars, right? And God says to Avraham, he says, Ani Hashem asher hotziticha me'ur kastim. It's interesting, right? Ani Hashem, it sounds like the first commandment, right? Anuchi Hashem lokech asher hotziticha me'ur mitzrayim, right? It says, Ani Hashem Hashem who took you out of ur kastim. I took you out of the other side of the river. So what happens here is that all of a sudden the exodus becomes paradigmatic. And it's not, again, it's not only, what's so striking about this is it's not only that we're seeing the exodus happen once and it becomes a paradigm for future experiences. But what it's saying is actually the exodus itself happened before it happened. It happened actually to Avram. This is a story that is an ongoing paradigmatic experience in our lives, and therefore it sort of creates a model for us to see that experience as, as recurring in our lives. There's this neat little text I brought on this other page here from the Mechilta, which is an early midrash on Sefer Shmot, and this is a midrash on phrase from Shirat Hayam, from the Song of the Sea. Ze eliv anvehu elohe avi varomimenhu, we say in the Song of the Sea, right? So this is my God, Ze'eliva Anvehu, this is my God, and I glorify him. Elohe Avi Varomenhu, right? The God of my fathers, and I raise him up. And the Midrash says, Amrak Neset Yisrael Ifnei HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Ribono Shalolam, Lo Al Nisim Sheasita Imi Bilvad Ani Omer Lefanecha Shirav Zimra. The Israelite people says before God, Master of the universe, it's not only about the miracles that you did for me that I'm singing a song of praise before you, right? This is what the Midrash is putting in the mouths of the people who are standing at the sea is singing this song, right? So first of all, notice the parallel to our Bechol Dorvador, right? It's not just this Bilvad, right? Also Behisha Amda, right? Bilvad, right? It's not just this alone, but it's also on this in every generation, we have that same phrasing both in Behisha Amda and Holdor Hador. Not just this, but also that in every generation. But here, we're looking, a person is standing in the midst of this amazing experience, right? They just had the 
sea split, they crossed over, the Egyptians are drowned in the sea, they're saying the Shira, and they say, you know what, when I say the Shira, I recognize that I'm not only praising you for this miracle that happened to me right now, but for the miracles that happened to my forefathers, Elohei Aviv, or I'm praising you for the miracles that happened to my forefathers, and also that you are doing with me in every single generation. In other words, seeing your experience as encapsulating within it all other similar experiences. And so when the Yeshua passage says, hey, wait a second, you know, when the Exodus happened, that wasn't the first time. It was already fulfilling a paradigm of enslavement and redemption, where we're being asked to notice that all moments of enslavement are folded into this enslavement, and all moments of redemption are folded into this redemption. And in essence, anytime we see enslavement in the world or experience enslavement, it encapsulates within it all enslavements. And anytime we experience redemption or see redemption in the world, it encapsulates within it all moments of redemption. Yeah. Could you say then that Yaakov was a slave also? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Right. And we're, we're not going to talk about this. Maybe my husband will. I don't know. But the next passage in Haggadah is Brit Ben Habitarim, which talks about what's going to happen. Enslavement, etc., and the language of Brit Benedict Harim actually plays itself out very specifically and identically, both in the Yaakov story and in the Exodus story. So, absolutely, right? There is this, the Haggadah works this paradigm out in many, many different ways. Yeah. So, if in fact, how brilliant of the Mechilta to have said and to have implied that all moments of enslavement are encapsulated in this little phrase and all moments of redemption too. Because if our whole objective in Haggadah is to make it personal, then we have to get from the Avadim Hayinu to Otanu. It's got to be Otanu and Lee, from Otanu also to Lee. So if it's got to be personal, then it's a riff on what Tova said, which is if all moments of enslavement are encapsulated, we don't need to be hit with the leaks for that to bring it home to us. Each person is thinking in his own or her own mind, oh, I remember when this happened to me too. And so I don't know whether that, and so then my question becomes, if we're making it too personal in terms of present day, does it dilute it? And That's a great take question. take away from right. the real purpose of it, which is not to lie on universalize, although universalize is the only way a story is ever going to be internalized, like the uh, come up with your own ending stories. Right. The reason that they were so successful is because it kept the attention of everyone till the end, which wasn't being told. So it reminded me of what you were saying. But if that happens and we are universalizing to the point of every enslavement, then this particular enslavement isn't as fresh and personal. And then the question becomes, how could anyone ever imagine an oppression if you haven't lived it? So anyway, so that's my right. question. So, so I, I think it's a great question. And, and I think, you know, in, in a way, it's a question about all acts of translation. By translation, I don't mean translating a text from English to Hebrew. Mm-hmm. I mean translating an experience or translating the meaning of a text. And it's something I struggle with a lot, not only in my teaching, but some of you may know I spend a lot of time on, not a lot of time, but a lot of time on a therapeutic farm in Western Massachusetts for people struggling with major mental illness. And most of the people there are not Jewish, and the people who are don't know anything about Judaism anyway. And so I'm always translating, you know, what is Talmud? What is, you know, people ask me a lot of Jew questions because I'm like a real Jew. <laughs> I am a real Jew, but for them, I'm like a like super Jew, you know. And every year we build an extraordinary sukkah on the farm. And my family actually comes up with the first days of Yantif, and we have an open house in the sukkah. It's, it's powerful. And I talk about the meaning of sukkah. And I struggle with this very question, right? The, when you universalize something or make something about everything that's very true to the thing 
And at the same time, sometimes it can obscure the thing itself. Um, but I think to me, the Mechilta actually helps me think about that. And I wasn't familiar with this Mechilta text till yesterday. Uh, I saw it in Josh Kulp has this nice Mechilta that JTS published, and, and he mentions this text. Doesn't say anything at all about this in this regard, but just mentioned this text, and I, I was thinking about it. And what I like about it is that it's not just saying, when you think of this, so you can get to that. What it's saying is that when I have this experience, it actually brings me back, that there's something, that all these experiences are one in some way, right? That, in other words, when I look at the Avram text, right, that is the Exodus text, and when I look at the Exodus text, that is the Avram text. So I think ideally, you know, in thinking about whatever your favorite terrible thing happening in the world right now is, right, and seeing that in relation to the Exodus, you know, ideally that both draws from the Exodus to help us understand that, but ideally that also draws us back to the story, that it's not just a translation of, but it brings us back to to actually standing in that story. And that's what I'm trying to get at here, that it's not just about, okay, so, okay, so my suffering is also that, but that understanding that way can actually help me come back into the that story. Okay, so then my question becomes, the that story, we've already imagined it four times. Okay, so when you say it brings us back to that story, so which story? Is it the one that resonates with me that we were idol worshippers, which we were Avadim then? Is right. that the one? Right. Is it the one when Sarah gets taken out of the harem being abused sexually and she goes out with Kosh Gadol? Right. Is it the Exodus story that Moshe takes out? Is it Yahushua? Right. So which is the this? Right. That's my so, question. So you're asking the same question a different way, I think, yeah. and I think the answer is yes. Good, right, um, but but yes, in other words, that it has to be both. In other words, if it only becomes that this is about world liberation, I think that's really important and a gift that the Jews have given the world. But telling person, but I think that has to bring it back to, and that and again, that to me is what the Mechilta does. That it brings it back mm-hmm. to right. That when I stand here and say, oh, you know, the Underground Railroad, or whatever, you know, whatever mm-hmm. moment in time, right, I I connect to this. That actually helps me not just say, oh, this is about my personal liberation, but mm-hmm. that helps me connect that to actually getting back. So okay. so that you can still say, oh, not and not only mean, right, my personal liberation in whatever I'm experiencing now, but that helps me see myself in that very story, which okay. is really hard to, I think. Yeah. Arvind, did you want to say something? Just like, I think that there's, I feel a tension between the individual experience and the experience of being part of a group. And I think that a lot of what goes on during the Seder also tries to engage us in that tension, right? right? Right. So if you're going to feel that you were actually there, that's a big, that's a job, right? That's what this Haggadah is trying to lead us to, this experiential Mm -hmm. thing for us as individuals. But this experience, the this, when we say yes to all of it, it is yes to all of it. But there's something very unique about Yitzhak Mitzrayim that we were all together. It wasn't just... Sarah or Abra or one right. of those people. Right. So there, there is a tension there. Like so, I guess the assumption is that when you, as an individual, can put yourself in that place of experience, then you're supposed to go the next yard and actually see yourself as part of a larger group of people. Right. And what's interesting is Behold Overdor actually does that exact trajectory, right? By bringing those two psukim. First, it's an individual must see him or herself as if he or she left Egypt, as it says, Asashem Li, all singular. And then, as it says, to bring us to the land. So you actually have both, right? See yourself as an individual, 
which then brings you into the communal experience. Because I think that for for a very modern grasping of the past, you know, looking at an experience now or looking at a personal experience, it's really hard for so many people to actually go to that place where they connect to all these other Jews that they would have been with right. in this experience. Right, that's interesting. No, certainly the Haggadah does not ignore that. I don't even know if the Haggadah could imagine an individual identity that was not part of right. Yeah, right. I think I think we live, you know, in America, the modern Western world in general, but America in particular, you know, in a kind of individual right. identity thing that probably never actually right. existed before. Right. Yeah, please. This is a more limited question. Well, in the Machilta, what in the wording, yeah. you could see that it's backward looking, that mm-hmm. it says, okay, I'll kill the Baron man here because he did it again. Where did the Machilta get the idea of the future? I think it was Se'imi Becholdor Vodar. The ones you already did for me and with my forefathers. Right, that's what, that's not, no. That, it just makes that commentary, but there's no reason to derive that from that portion. Oh, I agree. I think what the Mechilte is doing is that once it's taking Elohea V to mean that I'm praising God also for the miracles that God did with my ancestors, I think what yeah, is, I, I think it's doing that backward forward thing. That if, if my experience is something that happened before, right. then my experience could also, right, becomes a paradigm also right. for the future. I think that's where they're getting it. Does that make sense? It does, but it's much more pointed in the commentary. Right, absolutely. It seems to be adding it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree. The whole thing's being added. I mean, Elohei Avi is simply another way of saying elite. Parallelism <laughs> is taking it as offering this kind of historical, paradigmatic, recurring mention to this. Yeah. yeah. So we're supposed to see the beginning of the Exodus within each family's home, and each family is exempt from the punishment of the Egyptians and are experiencing the whole night hearing terror outside, and then uh, come out of the birth canal uh, with blood on the door and everything, and they become a, they're still separate families. And then they race out of their their hurry and finally get to Sinai and become, Moses says, a nation at that point. Right. So you go from the singular, or the single families, and then they become a nation, be us. But is that what happens in the Haggadah too? Hmm. Where do you see that? In? I'm asking. It could be. I don't know that right. well enough. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that's certainly possible. That when we think about, you know, the the focus earlier on on the children asking the parent and the parent teaching the child, and then at the end you sort of get this global Otanu, all of us. So that's that's certainly possible. I, you know, I think a lot of people nowadays would argue that there is no belonging to a global whole without belonging to a particular group, right? That we learn we learn what it means to be a part of a group and to be in a relationship that we can then bring to the bigger whole from the more microcosmic yeah, <laughs> smaller whole that wondering. that we do. So yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's explicitly reflective, but I think implicitly, you know, implicitly that's there, right? That there's the Lee, the me, the Otanu, the all of us, and then there's the family within which the Seder is taking place, which is reflected in the children asking the questions, Pika the Telebincha, etc. I think it's implicit in yeah. I just thought of it when you walked well, you've been reemphasizing the fact that we never get to the end, we never get to the land. Except for in Diana. Except yes. in Diana. Yes. So 
It always puzzled me why the three languages of Gula, of redemption, and say were always Hotseti, Hitsati, Hotseti, Hitsati, Gaalti, Lokakti, but then we We have behavior. Right. So is that the reason we don't add it? It seems like it would be a natural tautology. Right. right. Because you have, it's in the same structure of language and everything. Right. Aside from the fact that it becomes a five instead of a four and we want to stick with fours. But <laughs> but if it wasn't that narrow, would the reason be because everything else stops short of bringing you into right. the so, so I think, yeah, go ahead. Do you want to say something? I just want to say that we're ignoring the fact that this regard was written in Galois so that we... That's why we don't have the end of the story, because we are not in Israel. Okay, so, right, so that is one possibility, right? One possibility is that the reason we never finish the story is because it's in Galut and we're not in Israel. And, by the way, I think that's another aspect of identification, right? If it tells a story that's not true to our experience, you can't get there. If it tells a story that stops where we are... You can get there. So that's, that's one possibility. Another possibility, which I think is very important, and this sort of takes us a little bit outside of our topic, which I do want to kind of get back to for one minute before we conclude, is that Pesach is not the end of the holiday. Right? Shavuos is actually the end of the holiday. Right? Pesach is actually about the exodus. It's not actually about coming to the land. Right? Shavuos in the Torah is really about coming to the land. Purim, Mitzvah, Haaretz, etc. So, so we really, the holiday itself, separate from asking, you know, what I suggested before, the story that kind of is in progress and invites us into it, Pesach really is not about the end of the story. It's, it's actually about an early stage of the story. And so, and that's true whether you live in the land of Israel or live in Galus. Right? So I think there's many dimensions to the not, not, uh, you know, not getting to the end. Let's just take one more minute and let me just say one more. I just want to say one more thing about that Yoshua passage, which is it was implicit in what I said, but but wasn't explicit. I want to make it explicit. I mentioned about this Yoshua passage um, that it would, uh, what it does is it makes a one-time experience into a paradigm, right? By the time the exodus happened, it already happened, which means it can happen again. But the other thing that the Yoshua passage does is it offers us the modality of interpretation, that avdut, enslavement, we're being told in this passage, doesn't just mean enslavement, it can mean many kinds of enslavement. And that's there in the passage, vayavdu Elohim achirim, Right, they worshipped or were enslaved to other gods. But lest you miss it, this passage actually comes with an introduction. At the beginning, our ancestors were ovde avodazar. Now that's a phrase that we hear so often we don't think of it. But in the context of the Haggadah, it means they were enslaved to avodazara, and then God brought us close to being his slaves. Right? Which is, of course, the story of the Exodus. Avadim hayinu leparo b'mitzrayim. Mitchila ovde avodazara hayu avoteinu. What we're doing is, we're not just saying that this is a story that happened more than once. What we're saying is, this is a story that has many different meanings to it. There's many kinds of avdut, many kinds of enslavement, and that act of interpretation, and of course interpretation is central to the Haggadah, especially later on when we do the Midrash on Arami Ovei but that notion of interpreting, right, that the story doesn't just mean what the story means, the story can mean many, many things, is another way of kind of inviting us into a story that was not something that we experienced ourselves. There's other things that the Haggadah does that we're not going to get to. I just want to kind of recite the five things I did mention. One was the notion of a story that's not completed, a story that's in progress that draws us into it. One is the notion of asking questions and 
in asking questions, trying to regain the kind of naivete, curiosity, and wonder of a child. The third one was the models of first-person narratives of people who are not there. The fourth one was the notion of the Haggadah asserting and giving us models for thinking about the idea that this story is a paradigmatic story that happened before and happens again. And the fifth thing I mentioned is the notion of interpretation, which invites us to understand the story of enslavement and redemption as having many different possible meanings of enslavement and redemption. I want to end just with a little quotation. There's a Haggadah that was published a few years ago called The New American Haggadah, which is very neat Haggadah. And in that, there's a, there's a little passage by Rebecca Goldstein, who's a novelist, and she says the following thing. Haggadah means narration. And tonight's celebration insists on the moral seriousness of the stories that we tell about ourselves. Stories are easily dismissible as distractions, the make-believe we craved as children, losing ourselves in the sweet enchantment of as if. As if belongs to the imagination, that wild terrain governed by no obvious rules. But tonight we are asked to take this faculty of the mind, so beloved by children and novelists, extremely seriously. All the adults who have outgrown story time are to be tutored tonight, with the physical props meant to, to quicken our pretending and the ways of the child to guide us. It is not enough to merely tell the story, but we must live inside of it, blur the boundaries of our personal narrative so that we spill outward and include as part of our formative experiences, having lived through events that took place millennia before we were born. So I think that nicely captures the notion of actually that we are the children, that the Haggadah is trying to help understand that we are part of this story. Mm, okay. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much.